Good morning. I was told that this was a Christmas mask, and then I was corrected and said this is buffalo plaid. So, whichever. I'm allowed to wear it, I think, because it's still winter. That's what I found out, at least. Well, it's good to worship together this morning. Uh, It's good to hear God's word. It's good to sing God's word. Uh, It's good to rehearse and remember the truth of the gospel together. Uh, If you're new today, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here, um, and and it's good to to be together. I I know we're back kind of in another strange (laughs) season of COVID when, you know, uh, cases are on the uptick, and and a number of our church family, I know, are are needing to stay home, uh, which we understand. Um, Of course, there's there's something about God's made us to to gather together physically. He's made us embodied people uh, to to be together physically, but and we also want to be safe, and we're, and we're, we're glad that uh, members of our body can, can gather with us in this strange season uh, from a distance. And so, um, so for those who aren't with us today, uh, we miss you. We miss you. Um, and for those who are anxious or sick, uh, we're praying for you. And for those who are weary of masks and, and physical distancing and uh, all of that, we, we love you. Um, I know we're all weary of some of this stuff. And, and so the Lord is big enough for our fears, for our frustrations, our discomforts. In fact, he, he commands us to cast those upon him. And so that's, that's not a request or a suggestion by God. It is, it's a command. He, he, he says to bring our needs to him because he cares for us. So, so I want us to begin with prayer and to bring our needs to the Lord. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we, we, are, we are weary people um, because, God, it's only, only reality that's showing through, um, that we have no hope to stand apart from the strength that you provide. And so, Father, in this season of, of unrest and in this season of, of a virus and all of the things that go along with it, God, would, would you... Would you sustain those who are sick? Be with our medical professionals as they are uh, laboring um, extra hours. And, and God, would you, would you bring healing to those who are sick? And would you bring comfort to those who are anxious um, and protection to those who need it? And Father, would you, would you help each of us, uh, Father, to bring our, uh, our weariness, our frustration, our discouragement to you? Because we know that you meet us there and that you love us and you are with us. So would you be with us now? And would our hearts be open to hear your word? Would they be softened uh, by uh, the, the spirit uh, that we would hear and believe what you have said to us? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as, uh, as you know, I have, I have four children. And, or you may not know that, but I have four children. Family meals are... An exercise in convincing your children that good food is actually good. Amen? Yeah, it it doesn't matter how good your setup is, uh, how well you've smoothed the path, how much you've convinced them that roasted potatoes are pretty much the same as french fries, or how much cheese you've put on the broccoli. There's still that kind of rubber meets the road moment where like the fork goes into the food, and it, the food goes into the mouth. 
And, and even when that sour face shows up, even when a glass of water is required to get the meat down, there will still be years more of rehearsing this before they really believe you that it's good. And I think Peter has done that in this book. He is laboring to change our perspective on suffering. We, we come out of the womb with a default setting, a worldview which says, what I have or what I get, I must earn. This is baked into everything we do. It's how we see the world, and it really impacts the way we see suffering. And now certainly the scriptures contain principles of sowing and reaping, of the blessing of a life of righteousness uh, versus, versus the, the cursedness of a life of folly. But if we aren't careful, if our worldview isn't corrected by all of God's word and by his gospel, then we will be lured into the lie of self-determinism, which says that anything good that happens to me is because I worked for it. I read the right books. I put in the right effort. I performed well enough. I earned it. I deserved it. And maybe with, with a Christian spin on it is that God rewarded my effort. And of course, the flip side of that worldview says, man, if a bad thing happens to me, if I experience pain or failure, loss, rejection, suffering of any kind, well, then it was my own weakness, my own failure, my own fault. I must have done something wrong. My car battery died. I'm sure I deserved it. My boss is mistreating me. It's probably because I didn't have my time with the Lord yesterday. Therefore, our, our solution to suffering because, becomes, well, it's, it's something that can and must be avoided. Just try harder. Earn a better circumstance. But this is not a Christian worldview. A, a Christian perspective rejects this sort of thinking. And Peter is, is working in this letter to debunk it. He's saying, even in your righteousness... You may be hated. Even when you do good, you may still suffer. And where, he asks, do we see the, the zenith of this idea? When Christ, the sinless one, died for sin. When the righteous, Jesus, suffered and died for the unrighteous, you and I. So, so Peter is teaching us. He's training us to see suffering, not as failure, but as blessing. Why? Because it's the same path as our Savior. And not only that, it's producing something. In fact, uh, Paul says in, in Romans that, that suffering, the groaning of this world, is no random experience of pain and trouble. Suffering is not a kidney stone. Why'd you get that kidney stone? I don't know. Is your life better now that you don't have that kidney stone? I mean, I guess it's kind of the same as it was before I had the kidney stone. No, that, that's, a kidney stone is no blessing in the end. Paul says our suffering is like labor pains, on the other side of which there is a blessing. Suffering is birthing something in us. So as we look at today's passage, I, 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 wanna see, I want us to see three things about suffering. Number one, the preparation for suffering. Number two, the effect of suffering. And number three, the end of suffering. So first, the preparation the chapter begins with, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, and we just let that roll off our tongue, Christ suffered in the flesh. What, what a start. This has to appall us, that, that Christ suffered. 
This, this week actually was the, the, the historical church calendar, uh, the, the, the celebration of Epiphany. And if you're not familiar with Epiphany, uh, it follows Christmas, and it is, it is when the church historically has taken time to remember the unbelievable nature of Christ's life on earth. That the God of God, light of light, he was here. He had a skeleton. He had a sore back and headaches when he slept on that awful ground. He ate. He smiled. He got tired. And, and this king of the universe came to be with us. He, he, he was here, and he suffered. He was hated. He was rejected, scorned by religious leaders, betrayed by friends. And then, obviously, he endured the ultimate physical and emotional agony of death on the cross. Christ suffered. So Peter's saying, therefore, since he suffered, so we, got, we see the word therefore, we got to go, okay, what's this in reference to? What does it point us back to? In light of what we just saw, because we just heard about Christ's sufferings, so what did we just hear about Christ's sufferings? At the end of chapter 3 in verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So Christ just didn't just suffer to show you how to do it. He suffered for you, for your sin, for mine. He, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might gain his righteousness. Because of this, therefore, since he suffered in his body for you, arm yourself also with the same understanding. In other words, get ready. This sounds kind of like Philippians 2, doesn't it? Where Paul said, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. But here he says, don't, don't just think this way. Harm yourself. This is a warfare word. Get your weapons ready. Get ready for the fight. Prepare for the battle. And, and what kind of warfare is it? It's a battleground of the mind, of our thinking. There's, there's no amount of, of preparation you can engage in not even any amount of scripture that you can memorize. There's certainly no personality test, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram uh, that you can take. No, no metric of church attendance that you can meet that will prepare you for unjust suffering apart from dwelling on the reality that Christ suffered for you. So Peter's saying, arm yourself with that reality. Remember that. Why? Because you're about to walk the same road. His road is going to be yours. Peter says then, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Now, this is a curious phrase, I'll admit. Um, what does it mean that one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin? Scholars actually disagree on, on who this is about. Um, I think we can wade through this pretty easily. Um, but he says, the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So is this about Christ's suffering? Or is this about our suffering? Uh, we know for sure that Jesus never needed to stop living for human desires because he never lived for human desires. So that part is definitely not about him. But when Jesus suffered on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Right? This, mean, this meant he had accomplished it. He, he had finished dealing with sin once for all. He doesn't need to atone for our sins anymore. Uh, but, but I don't think that's it. This is actually a, a different Greek word. Uh, unlike the, the finished work of Christ on the cross, this word means someone who's, the, the one who suffers in the flesh refrains from sin or isn't stirred anymore by sin. 
It's, it's a different idea. And I think this is about us. Since Jesus suffered, arm yourself with the same understanding. I love uh, Eugene Peterson, has his, his great uh, translation of the Bible, his, his paraphrase, um, it can sometimes be really helpful, and he's such a, he's such a great scholar. Um, and his, his, uh, the way he paraphrased this text, I think, is, is fantastic. It's helpful. He said, since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. It's fantastic, huh? Dwell on Jesus, look to him so that you might suffer like him. And that brings us to number two, the effect of suffering. Peter's saying this, this isn't just about Christ's suffering. You have to also learn to suffer like him. But, but your suffering's not accomplishing what his did, is it? His suffering accomplished something for you, justification, forgiveness of sin. But through your suffering, he's going to accomplish something in you. He's changing you, sanctifying you. In what way, you may ask? Well, that what Peter says is that you may live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. The effect of suffering is a sanctifying effect. Suffering is helping you put an end to sin, to kill your desires, making you one who longs for God's will. So how does this happen? How does suffering, something that is not all that great, seemingly so. How does it do something good? How does it help us to kill sin? And I'm going to talk about two ways here, and, and they're, these are really just two different kinds of suffering. And there's actually a third type of suffering I'm not really going to get into, and I don't think Peter mentions as much, but it's the suffering of just living in a fallen world, the suffering of sickness, disease, disaster, uh, death. I, and I don't want to make light of this, because we are, everyone, all, in some way or another, we've, we've experienced many of these things. But let's look at these two ways that Peter, I think, is, is pointing us to. First, we suffer because of our sin. Some of our suffering in life is a result of our sin. Uh, but even our self-induced suffering, it serves us. That suffering serves us. It helps us to desire sin less. It helps us to see the vanity of our sin by God's grace. When I harm my brother... As, his spirit, as God's spirit moves in me, I see how awful it made things for my brother. So God's spirit draws me to remember Christ's sufferings. And as I suffer, like King David, I feel the weight of my hatred, the weight of the offense that I cause God. And by God's grace, he, he helps me to put sinful desires to, to death. So we suffer because of our sin. Secondly, suffering helps us kill sin when we suffer unjustly, when we suffer for doing good, when we suffer because of others' sins against us. And this has been Peter's refrain throughout the book. Uh, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, sa he says later, suffer for doing good. When we suffer for righteousness, we learn the blessedness of union with Christ. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. His presence is with us in the fire, in the middle of our suffering, which leads us to love even more. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, 
speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This, this sort of suffering trains us, teaches us to obey Jesus. Amazingly enough, even Jesus himself experienced the blessing of this sort of suffering. Hebrews 8 says this, and this is a, one of those mind-blowing sort of passages. Hebrews 8 says, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learning anything is, is kind of a mind-blowing thing in and of itself. Uh, but suffering gave Jesus that experiential knowledge, that learning of trusting and following the Father in the midst of suffering. So we learn this from Christ's example, the same sort of resolve, so that suffering might fulfill its purpose in us. However, and, and I think this is really important as we walk through 1 Peter, because Peter's really emphasizing that we, we are, are suffering for doing good. But let's be honest. Even our righteousness gets cloudy as we suffer, doesn't it? In fact, it's hard to imagine a kind of suffering that we might endure for righteousness that isn't tainted, even if slightly, by our own sin. What begins as enduring hardship for Christ becomes complaining. How long? Why do I have to go through this, Lord? What started with refusing to compromise your integrity in the workplace, doing what is righteous, even to the point of losing your job, slowly morphs into despair, malice, self-pity. Does this sound familiar to you? That somehow even in our suffering for righteousness, we can become sinfully self-focused. Why? Because I'm involved. Because you're involved. But take heart, because when you suffer, God is involved. And he says here through Peter, arm yourself with this. The understanding of Christ's suffering. Think of that in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. He is shaping you. He is there. He's conforming you to his will in spite of us. This is such a promise that as we join Christ in his sufferings, we become more like him. So how, how does this work? What does it mean that the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin? Clearly, this doesn't mean that you're through with sin in this life. Uh, but it does mean that you will be changed, that, you will, that your sin will be put to death. And so the question is, then how? I think su suffering has an incredible way of exposing what we really love, doesn't it? What we really trust. And when our hearts love and trust in something more than the Lord himself, the fancy theological word for that is idolatry. Suffering exposes our idolatry. And look, if you don't like being called an idolater, you might want to steer clear of the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah says about us that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Jesus says that out of our hearts come all sorts of evil. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, put to death what belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And even when the Lord rescued his people out of Egypt, what was the first of his ten commands to them? You should have no other gods before me. Why would a command like that even be necessary? Why would they have interest in other gods? Yahweh had just rescued his people from a cruel Pharaoh using 
incredibly miraculous plagues. And then he parted a sea just to, you know, show him a cool way out. But then, and, and then later, what do, they, what do they get? They get food coming down from the sky. But in the weeks and months to come, despite priding themselves in following, suffering to follow the Lord's commands, when things get too difficult, when the food's a little too sparse, or just when Moses takes a little too long to come back from talking with God on the mountain, just a little suffering and they panic. Their little G gods of security and comfort were threatened. So what did they do? They despaired. They complained. They grumbled against Moses, against God. And and yes, they even worshipped other gods. They obeyed for a little while, but eventually doubt crept in. Surely God isn't powerful enough, not sufficient enough for us. We need another salvation. We need another way out of this suffering. See, suffering didn't cause their idolatry. Suffering, though, did expose it. And even in their attempts at righteousness, sin was right there crouching at the door. And it's the same way for us. Suffering, even unjust suffering, draws our hidden idolatries into the light of day. So when we don't get the outcome we want, we grumble. When physical pain comes, we despair. When our child rebels or when the money runs low, when we suffer for our convictions, we grow anxious, we rage, we want vengeance. Suffering serves us by exposing these idolatries. So how is this good? This sounds like, not, it's not like service. This is like even more suffering, just showing me more bad things. And here's, what it, here's how it serves us, because in verse 1, the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Suffering exposes my desire for sin, and when, it's, when my sin's brought into the light, I can kill it. It can be put to death. Christ suffered once for all for my idolatries to bring me to God so that as I bring my sin to the Lord, armed with the reality of my union to Christ, he is faithful to change me. This is good news. This is good news for sufferers and for idolaters. So how will you respond when suffering exposes your idols? Better yet, will you even allow it to happen? You ask or be asked the probing questions that help you see them. Will you walk in the light so that your sin might not have room to breathe, so others might help you put your sin to death? Or will you justify your idolatry? Will you explain how your sin isn't as bad as someone else's, how your idolatry is misunderstood? Will you blame those who help you see it? Or by God's grace, when suffering reveals your idols, will you fight to put your sin to death? In verse 3, Peter says, For there's already been enough time uh, spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. That's quite a list. Interestingly, Peter's readers, I think, would have heard this list, and I think they would have had a, a tinge of regret and probably some knowing nods. They, they knew what Peter was talking about. They knew the life that they had lived. They had not converted from Judaism, but from paganism. Life in the Near Eastern world was marked by 
satisfying the desires of the flesh. It was marked by pagan worship that was, that was giving your body, your sexuality even, to other deities. And, and these new Christians had experienced this uh, and that they knew what it meant to be, to, to be drowning in a flood of wild living. That's what Peter calls it. And maybe you have, your, have trouble finding yourself on this list. You look at this and you're like, well, I'm not big into drunkenness. I'm not big into orgies. I'm not a big carouser. It's not a word we use a lot. I'm probably all right. But guess what? This, this list is not about those people. It's about you, and it's about who the Lord has changed you from and, and what he was, who, who he is changing you into. This list is about your unrestrained behavior. My lust, my lawless idolatry. And we have a hard time believing this, but, but if we want suffering to have its effect in us, we have to examine our own hearts. This week, we, we all watched, I, I'm sure, in, in horror as, as some radical folks decided it'd be a good idea to use violence and chaos uh, to, to storm the Capitol building in D.C., as, as Pastor Barry mentioned earlier. And it was, it was horrific. It was, it was lawlessness. And of course, you know, the, 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 it's, the political blame game has kicked in and uh, outrage all around. No doubt, as an American, the whole thing was disappointing. And as Christians, we, we grieve, we lament together. And God does call us to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. Man, we, we have to be. The, the scriptures command us to pray for our leaders, for those who are in authority over us. But can I just be honest for just a moment? Not, not that the rest of the sermon wasn't honest. Um, it's a funny phrase. Uh, let me just be honest, though, as your pastor, or as one of your pastors, I, I, I want to say, of course there were obvious sins on uh, display on Wednesday. The violence, the intimidation, the rebellion, the lawlessness. And, and, and these things have been on display in numerous ways in our nation. And this, this is a, it's, a pain, it's painful. It's a painful moment in our nation's history, um, all that is going on. And, and, we, and we all, I think, feel it. There's a degree of kind of helplessness in the air. And we see divisiveness, extreme political ideologies on the left and the right. And, and I can't help but think, as Christians, how will this suffering help you to kill sin? What sort of idolatry is this exposing in us, in you, in me, not in them, not in your political opponents, not in QAnon or Antifa, but in us? Look, political zeal isn't always a bad thing. At its best, it's a pursuit of human flourishing. It's a serving of the greater good. And it's okay to be frustrated or excited about an election result. However, this can go too far. If our frustrations, our fears, even our excitement can't be held in check, then perhaps our hopes have become too, too attached to the result. Tim Keller, in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, he says one of the ways that we can see our idols is by asking some probing questions. Questions such as, where do your most uncontrollable emotions show up? And what are your nightmares? What if you lost it would cause you to lose your hope for living? 
the unbridled anger and fear and even excitement that's been stirred up during this political season, I think has revealed, I believe, a deep idolatry in the hearts of many people in our country, which makes sense for people who don't know Jesus. Like they're trying to find some hope, something to root themselves in. They don't know the king. But if we are not careful as believers, the news shows, the talking heads, the social media, it will stir the same such idolatries in us. What idolatry has the suffering of this moment revealed in your heart? Is it a desire for comfort through political stability? The loss of which leaves you with fear and anxiety? Is it the idealization of America as a great utopia? Leaving you in panic or anger when this reality is threatened or exposed? Maybe, maybe it's an overrealized hope in a politician, leaving us ecstatic if they win or in despair if they lose. Maybe it's a prized viewpoint or political party leading us to feel hatred toward even brothers and sisters who differ. Maybe, maybe for you it's an idolatry for self that says, I think I'm better than others because of the way I speak the truth, because of the way I say that what needs to be said. Or maybe, like the Pharisee in Luke 18, we say, thank God I'm so cool-headed, not like all those other people who get sucked into the fray. Brother, sister, the time is short. As Peter said, for there has already been enough time spent and doing what the Gentiles choose to do. So I say to us, as citizens of heaven, may we experience and exhibit a peace that is foreign in this world. And may the suffering that we feel, may it lead us to see and repent of our idolatry in this moment. Let us fix together our eyes on the Lord of hosts, the sovereign king who has told us, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There is no political leader greater than him and no kingdom better than the one he brings. At the name of Jesus, every knee, yours, mine, every leader, every nation will be brought low. And this leads us to number three, to the end of suffering. Verse 4, it doesn't quite start there. It says, they are surprised, these Gentiles, that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And I, and I think, like, I love this, this expression, this flood of wild living, because isn't that what life apart from Christ kind of felt like? Like drowning in a flood of what we thought would make us happy. Always promising, but then swallowing us up. And Peter's going, you, you did this enough. You gave enough of your life to this sin. And praise God, it's not who you are anymore. You're a new creation. These, these Christians could look back and say, man, by God's grace, I'm experiencing a better life now, an abundant one, one of joy and not anxiety, one of love for my brothers and sisters, replacing lust and evil, evil desire, one with hope in the king of kings 
that's quelled my political anger. One that has done, done away with the fog of drunkenness and has had it replaced by a vibrant life of serving by God's Spirit. And so what are your friends when they see you not joining in in the old way of life? What do they do? He says they slander you. As you put sin to death, it's been so, such a big part of who you are that when your friends turn around, they see you not joining in, what do they do? What do they say? They say, what's wrong with you? Are you holier than thou now? You're too good for us? He thinks she, he's better than us. She thinks she's better than us. Uh, we see this on a small scale every day, I think. I, I've at least seen this uh, in myself in marriage. Uh, when it's, uh, maybe some of you have as well. Uh, it's been holiday season lately, right? So maybe some of us haven't been eating as healthy. Uh, maybe, amen. Um, and all of a sudden, Amy, I mean, your wife, says, I'm going to have a salad for dinner. Instead of saying, good for you. That's great. Maybe your initial thought is, I'm having a burger. Get off my back. Right? She didn't say anything. And, and this is still the common experience, right, for new Christians, even mature Christians. When you take a step toward Christ, toward putting sin to death, those who sinned with you, they're not going to rush in to encourage you. No, what will they do? They'll, they'll resent you. They'll take it personally. But you know what will be way worse for them than having to watch you walk away from the sin that they're still enjoying? What will be way worse is verse 5, where Peter says, They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's saying, judgment's coming. And notice, you, you aren't the keeper of accounts. Sure, we, we tell our friends about Jesus. We share the gospel, but we aren't tasked with vindicating, with defending. No, this accounting belongs to the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge of all. And I know it goes against everything in us not to attempt, uh, to not attempt to vindicate ourselves uh, or our positions, to not try to correct every friend on Facebook. Don't do that. Uh, to not chase down anyone who opposes you or speaks wrongly of the gospel. Why? Because it feels unjust to let them off the hook. And this is what Peter's speaking to. We, we see, this is what we see. We see sinful, hateful people those who oppose Christ, and by the world standards, they're thriving. And they speak ill of us for not jumping in with them, for not going all in for self, for hoping in an invisible God amidst political chaos, for not spending every dime to chase possessions. They, they slander us. They, they make fun of us. And not only that, but we see others who walk in righteousness, who walk in humility, many of whom suffer in this life, and they see little recognition. They, they aren't displaying their good works for all to see, not joining in in the parade of hot takes, not receiving the applause of men, and yet they're scorned for not participating in the idolatry of this age. They're mocked, never recognized, and we feel the injustice of that. We should. But Peter's saying, just wait. Evil will be punished. Those who mock Jesus, those who slander you, they will give an account. In fact, Jesus said one day men will give an account for every careless word. For those who live for pleasure in this life only, who reject the life Jesus offers, theirs is an eternal suffering. Ah, but for those who have believed the gospel, 
Peter says it in verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. This wording may sound a little clunky, but I don't think it's that complicated. He's saying those who have heard and believed in Jesus, even Christians who have already died, they may have experienced great suffering in this life. By worldly standards of judgment, people people may have mocked them, hated them. Life may have been full of grief for them, but don't worry about them. Peter's saying, be comforted. The fact that pain and suffering never relented for them in this life does not invalidate God's goodness. No, this is why the gospel came to them and came to you. Jesus, the righteous one, he suffered for you and took your punishment. Because now anyone who has believed that, anyone who's heard it and trusted it, has eternal life. He'll be alive in the spirit for the age to come. And on that day, just like the friends at Redeemer who have died, just like right now, Michelle Wistrand and Jan Guger, like Denise Boriak and John Perkle, like them, we will also one day know the end of eternal suffering. It will not be eternal suffering. The life that they're living now, because of the gospel of Jesus, Peter's saying that life is theirs now, and it will one day soon be yours. Life forever with Jesus. True life in the spirit. Life without pain. Life where evil doesn't go unpunished. Life where, as the prophet Amos says, justice will flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Yes, the the expiration date on suffering is drawing near. And it will be swallowed up in the new heavens and on the new earth where the name of Jesus will not be mocked or used for selfish gain, but will be lifted high for our joy. Is this future with Jesus, is this your hope? If you're not a believer today, maybe you've Maybe you've never even thought about your sin, never considered Jesus' death for you. and Maybe you've made fun of believers for not joining in with you. I think Peter would say to you today, judgment's coming. It's coming. There's no way around it. It's coming for all of us. You'll have to give an account for your life. And believe me, there's only one way you want to meet the judge. And that's with Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your substitute. To believe in him, trust him. He'll forgive you. Maybe you're a new Christian or a young Christian and you're just beginning to realize how uncool it really is to be a Christian. Maybe you thought being a Christian would be this respectable thing that you might be applauded or thought well of in this world. Take heart. Though the world may despise you, your heavenly Father has adopted you. He's brought you in. You have a place in God's family. We now here, we are your brothers, your sisters, Yes, you will suffer, but arm yourself with the same attitude as Christ, and the Lord will carry you. He will change you. He's with you. And for all of us who are followers of Jesus, don't waste your suffering. As Peter said, there has already been enough time spent in chasing the desires of this world. So let's let's look to Jesus. Let's repent of our sin. Let's let's repent of our idolatries and, and rejoice in the suffering king. And he will finish the work he's begun in you.
Would you pray with me? Father, there is only one hope for us. There is only one king. There is only one kingdom. And there is only one deep and everlasting joy. And Father, as we endure suffering, as we walk through difficulty, as we experience pain in this world, would those truths and those realities be ever more clear to us? Would you help us by your spirit to put sin to death as, is it ex- as it is exposed in us, to do away with our idolatry as we see the, the, the fleeting and, and worthless nature of our sin, and would it be replaced with the surpassing worth and value of the supreme one of the universe, of Jesus. And so God, do this in us. Change us, shape us, make us more like our Savior, that we would suffer like him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.